Good morning. My name is Kevin, and I am excited to be here with you all this morning. Thanks for joining us. For those of you who are joining online, thanks for joining us. I want to shout out to my uh, buddy Marshall, who I believe is uh, checking in online with us this morning. Well, today we are continuing in our series we're calling Grow. So throughout this year, we are inviting everyone at Genesis Church to study through the Gospel of John. And as we do this together as individuals and as a church family, our hope and prayer is that we will grow in our faith, we'll grow in our relationship with God. And so on Sunday mornings, uh, for most of this year, we're going to teach from a passage of John. And then each of us can individually study that same passage. Now, we're encouraging you to consider using the SOAPS Bible study method. And you can find that study plan on the back, uh, the study plan and the SOAPS explanation on this handout out in the lobby. And so it kind of explains that for you. But the SOAPS study method is really simple. And it's designed to help you uh, understand a passage of Scripture, help you learn how to discern God's voice and to follow God's leadership in your life. If you'd like to learn more about uh, how to use the SOAPS method, I want to invite you to come join us for our, what we're calling our SOAPS workshop. And it's going to be on Saturday, January 29th from 9 to 11 over at the Noblesville campus. And uh, so two hours long. I'm going to be leading that workshop. I'd love to have you join us. Parents, if you have children eight or over, bring them with you. Uh, I'm going to make this kid friendly. Uh, I think I'm going to try to engage and involve a couple of my kids. This would be a great way to teach your children a very simple but effective way to study the Bible. And you give you an opportunity to study the Gospel of John alongside your children this year. So you can sign up for that workshop on our website at genesischurch.me. All right, if you have your Bibles, turn to uh, the Gospel of John, John chapter 1. And as you turn there, before we dive into God's Word, let me pray for us. Let's pray. Father, I am so thankful, so thankful for your love for us. I'm thankful for your son, Jesus. I'm thankful for your church. I'm thankful for your word. And God, I'm thankful that you brought this message into my life this week. And I just pray that you would uh, encourage us, teach us, speak to us, open our eyes, Lord, this morning as we open up your word. Help us to see in the text what you'd want us to see. Help us to hear your life-giving voice. We want to follow you today, Jesus. Would you speak to us uh, through your word? It's in your name we pray, Lord. Amen. Amen. Okay, so in his gospel account, the apostle John makes the bold claim that Jesus of Nazareth was the Son of God and the source of eternal life. And the good news is that we can have eternal life by believing and having faith in Jesus. John summarizes the purpose of his gospel in John chapter 20, verse 31. So it's at the very end of his gospel. He says this, but these things are written, everything I write in my gospel, everything we're going to study this year in the gospel of John is written so that you and I, so that we as readers may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, if you picture a wheel then this statement is kind of like the center of the wheel or the hub of the wheel. And every passage you're going to study this year in the Gospel of John is like a spoke that is rooted in this statement. I want to highlight uh, one specific word in this statement. It's the word believe. John says that you may believe and that by believing you may have life in his name. If you were with us back in September, you may remember we talked about how in the gospel of John, he uses the word believe 98 times in his gospel. It has been referred to as the gospel of belief. Now, Webster's Dictionary defines believe like this. It's to accept or agree that something is true. 
But when John uses the word believe, he means much more than that. John doesn't want us just to agree that Jesus is the Son of God. Think about it this way. Even Satan agrees that Jesus is the Son of God, right? So John must mean more or mean something different. When John uses the word believe, it's the Greek word pastuo, and it means to place your confidence in or to entrust yourself to the thing that you believe in by faith. Now, here's the thing. It's a verb, not a noun. It is active and ongoing. It's an active and ongoing belief. It means to begin believing and to keep on believing. And so when you place your confidence or your faith in Jesus for the very first time, you can experience his love and forgiveness. You begin by faith an eternal relationship with God. But you can also experience the love of God and eternal life today as you believe by faith on a daily basis. Every day we have opportunities to exercise our faith in Jesus. And when we do, we grow. We grow in our faith. We grow in our relationship with God. Now, what specifically are we believing Jesus for? John says we're believing that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. So the Jews of Jesus' day were expecting and looking for and waiting for the Messiah, when he would come and he would deliver them from their sins. That was what their hope was in. And it's important for us to know that, to understand our story today. So last week, we looked at the introduction to the gospel of John. Today, we're going to look at the very next passage where John begins the narrative part of his gospel. He begins his story of Jesus with a man that is often referred to as John the Baptist. Now, just for the sake of clarity... John the gospel writer and John the Baptist are two different Johns. Okay, can get a little confusing. John the gospel writer is the apostle John. He wrote the gospel and he writes about John the Baptist and John the Baptist's role in Jesus's story. Now he mentions John the Baptist for the first time in chapter one, verse six. Here's what he says. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, John the Baptist, Okay. He came as a witness, is this clear? He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. Now, you may notice that he uses a couple of key words there, and he uses the word witness. John the Baptist was a man sent from God. He came as a witness to testify. Now, what is the role of a witness? Well, witness testifies to what they have experienced a witness testifies to what they've seen and what they've heard with their own eyes and ears. And so this is what John is doing in his ministry. And he's doing it down by the Jordan River. This is a picture of the Jordan River. You can imagine a clearing off on the side of the river. And this is where John's ministry was just kind of his home base. And he is teaching and he is, people are coming to him. We're told in Matthew chapter 3 that people from Jerusalem and Judea and the whole region of the Jordan were coming to John. They're confessing their sins and they're being baptized by him in the Jordan River. Hence, John the Baptist, right? Well, John's ministry is making enough noise that it caught the attention of the Jewish leaders over in Jerusalem. So you see down here at the bottom of the map, there's Bethany over here on the lower right. And over here on the left is Jerusalem. And so some leaders from Jerusalem make the trek out over to Bethany. And they come over because they want to find out who he is and why is he baptizing people. So let's pick up the story in chapter 1, verse 19. Now, this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites. They sent them over here to his ministry in Bethany to ask him who he was. 
He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. He goes on. They asked him, well, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, well, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Now, if this were a movie, this is the opening scene of the movie, then the villain just entered the story. Every story includes a protagonist, I mean, a protagonist, a hero, and an antagonist, the villain, who's the opposition to the hero. In John's story about Jesus, he presents the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem as the opposition to Jesus. William Barclay points out that John refers to the Jews or the Jewish leaders over 70 times throughout his gospel account. Now, these religious leaders were in theory waiting for the Messiah. In fact, John's response, I'm not the Messiah, tells us their first question must have been, are you the Messiah? So why, what are they in opposition of? Why are they, why are they the opposition? Author Nez, Leslie Newbegin says in his commentary, the Jewish leaders or the Jews in John's narrative represent the world, especially the religious world that is established apart from faith. He goes on to say, in the drama of the gospel, they represent the fact that religion is unbelief. You could say religion is performance-based. <clears throat> it's behaving and acting and doing the right things in order to earn God's acceptance and favor. The truth is, the whole world is performance-based, right? The world will tell you your worth and your value is, de is totally dependent on how well you perform in life. You need to earn your righteousness, the world says. And this is what the Jewish leaders, this is the same mindset they took. They took great pride in their efforts and in their performance. That was what they placed their confidence in. It was more about themselves than about God. But the gospel says we put no confidence in ourselves. The gospel says we are saved by grace through faith. This is not of ourselves. We don't deserve it. We don't earn it. And so you can see why the religious leaders who they were opposition to a message and to a man who was preaching a message about faith, that salvation comes through faith. And you can see why they're interested in hearing more about his ministry. And so they asked John, who are you? Tell us about yourself. And here's how John answers that question in verse 23. John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. I love how John answers their question, uh, who are you? And he describes himself by quoting a passage in the Old Testament. Who are you? I am Isaiah 43, he says. Here's how Isaiah 43 reads. A voice of one calling, in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. John says, this is who I am. And just a little side note about identity and who you, do you say, what do you say about yourself? The Christian finds their identity only in the word of God. Only in the word of God. We can be tempted to find our identity in things that we accomplish, the work we do, roles we play in our family, Sometimes we can find our identity in our personality. We take personality tests, gift mix. So I'm this, I'm that, I'm a number, I'm this number, I'm that number. I lost track of all the numbers. <laughs> Listen, your identity is in the word of God. Don't add anything to it and don't take anything away from it. You are who God's word says you are. And that John says, this is who I am. I am, I find my identity in Isaiah 40 verse 30. Now, John says, I'm just a voice. I'm a voice calling out. I'm a voice pointing people to the Lord. Prepare the way for the Lord. 
William Barclay points out that eastern roads at the time were not well surfaced. And say, but when a king would come to visit an area, a region, a province, people would go out ahead of him and they would prepare the roads. They would smooth them out and straighten them out in order to put them uh, in order and prepare them for the king to arrive. And listen, in essence, this is what God still does in our lives today. God will often send people out ahead of him to prepare a person's heart for Jesus' arrival. Back in 2001, God sent six people into my life to prepare my heart. Each of these people had different kinds of relationships with me. They had different kinds of spiritual conversations with me, but each of them in some way pointed me to Jesus. My guess is that's what God is doing in some of your lives today. He's working in your heart and you're not quite sure what he's doing or what's happening. Maybe you're here at Genesis, maybe you're watching online because someone pointed you and someone is pointing you to Jesus. God is sending people into your life, maybe a family member or a friend or a coworker. And what God is doing is he's preparing your heart for his arrival. Now for the rest of us, maybe we need to be reminded today that God can use us, that God wants to use us to point others to Jesus. And like John, we can be a voice in someone's life, calling out in their wilderness, pointing them to Jesus, preparing them for their Lord's arrival. So how did they respond? How did the Jewish leaders respond to John's voice? Well, let's see in verse 24. Now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, why then do you baptize if you're not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? Now, I want you to notice, they seem to ignore or dismiss John's answer about himself. They just, they just move right, like they don't pay any attention to what John says about himself. They don't seem to respond to the fact that he just told them he was there to prepare the way for the Lord. They ignore that. They're more concerned about this baptizing thing. Why are you baptizing, they ask. Here's what John says in verse 26. I baptize with water, John replied. And then he's gonna shift the conversation. He's gonna point them to Jesus. Listen, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the stripes of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. He says, listen, I'm just a voice. I'm just baptizing with water. I'm trying to point you to the one you should be looking for. He's the one who's coming after me. The one you don't recognize? Yeah, he is much greater than me. And that one, the one John was sent to prepare for, the one John was pointing to, the one that John was testifying about, the hero of the story is about to make his grand entrance into the gospel of John for the very first time. And John the Baptist has the high privilege of introducing the hero of the story. Verse 29, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The next day is the day after John is questioned by the Jewish leaders. John's giving us some chronological detail there. John looks up and he sees Jesus. And this is the climactic moment of his testimony, of his ministry. Here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the one he came to prepare for. Now, a little bit of context here. The first time that Jesus shows up in the four gospel accounts as an adult is when he is baptized. But John in his gospel account does not record the baptism. But if you look over in Luke and in Matthew, both of their accounts record John baptizing Jesus. If you follow the chronological account, here's how it unfolds. Jesus shows up. He gets baptized. He leaves, goes into the wilderness for 40 days of fasting and prayer. Then after being gone for nearly six weeks, Jesus returns 
This is where John picks up his story. And, and he comes out of fasting and praying, gone for six weeks, for 40 days. John says, look, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, John could have introduced Jesus any number of ways. So why does he choose to announce Jesus as the Lamb of God? Well, as pastor and author Tim Keller says, it's because the story of the Bible is the story of the Lamb. The story of the Lamb begins with Abraham in the book of Genesis, and it ends in Revelation with Jesus, the Lamb of God, being worshiped on his throne. And by far the most important story of the Lamb is the story of Passover. You remember the Passover Lamb? The Israelites were enslaved in Egypt, and in the book of Exodus, God sends Moses to Pharaoh to free them, and God sent 10 plagues on Egypt. Now, it's important to understand that each of the plagues represented God's judgment on Pharaoh and, in the, uh, and the Egyptians and their false gods. And God's judgment is his just response to sin and rebellion. God's judgment is his just response to sin and rebellion. But after nine plagues, Pharaoh still refuses to let God's people go. The 10th and final plague or the final judgment is the death of the firstborn son. And it's recorded in Exodus chapters 11 and 12. God declares that the firstborn, every firstborn in Egypt will die. But God tells Moses and the Israelites how they can be spared of his judgment. He tells them to take the blood of the lamb and to put it on the doorpost of their homes. And in doing so, at night, when the death angel comes, they will be saved from God's judgment. Here's a summary, Exodus chapter 12. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. When I see the blood, the blood of the lamb, I will pass over you. This was the Passover lamb. This was the Lord's Passover. God was the one who conceived of the Passover. And he's the one who provided for it. And he's the one who told them how to be saved from his judgment. Notice, even the Israelites were under his wrath. But God, in his good mercy, was going to provide a way for them to be saved from it. He was both the righteous judge, bringing his wrath and punishment upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians, worship of false gods, and he was the deliverer of his own people. Moody's commentary says, the nation of Israel was saved, delivered through and from judgment by the death and shedding of the blood of the lamb. The lamb was the substitute. The lamb got what the son deserved. And where was the faith of the Israelites that night? Put yourself in their shoes, huddle up, in their homes that night. Every time I think about this, I can get pretty emotional. As a dad of my, of children, multiple children, as a mom, as a dad, can you imagine gathering your family up in this house? It's dark out and there's a death angel going from house to house and people are weeping and wailing and the firstborns are dying over and over again. Imagine you're sitting there. What is your faith in? What is your hope in? What's your whole life? What are you placing your entire life in? You're hoping that that blood that you put on that doorpost that seems really strange, your hope is in that blood. You're hoping that the blood works, that it saves you, that it protects you, that it delivers you from death and from judgment. They were saved by faith in the blood of the lamb. Moody goes on to say this, as the nation of Israel was saved from the judgment 
As the nation was saved from the judgment on Egypt, so believers in Jesus Christ are saved through faith, through and from the judgment by the death and blood of the Lamb. We huddle, listen, get this picture. We huddle in this room this morning and online. We huddle together as a church family. And as we huddle together, what's our faith in? We have one faith and our faith is in one thing. Together, our faith is in the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Apostle Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Jesus was our Passover lamb. Jesus is the ultimate and final Passover lamb. This is why John said, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is why John the Baptist came to testify. This is what he testified about. And then there's this really neat detail uh, that, that John includes in his story. It's in verse 29. Let's pick up a verse 29 again. The next day, John saw Jesus coming uh, toward him. And he said, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one, listen to John. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him. Wait a minute. I myself did not know him. But the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Let's just pause right here. I want you to notice that John says, I myself did not know him. Now, John can't be saying he didn't know who Jesus was because he was relatives of Jesus. Remember this? So he had to have known who Jesus was. What's he saying? John knew Jesus. What he's saying is, I didn't know that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God. I've lived my whole life growing up with this guy. I knew him. I didn't know he was the Son of God. And then he tells us the rest of his testimony. John tells us how he learned or when he discovered that Jesus was the Lamb of God. Look at verse 32. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. John is talking about the moment he baptized Jesus here. So make sure I put these pieces together for us. He's saying, God called me to go start a ministry and start baptizing people. And then God said, there's going to be a man who comes to you one day and he's going to be baptized. And when you baptize him, while you're baptizing him, the spirit of God will come down kind of like a dove and remain on him. God said to John, when you see that happen, that guy is the lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. And John says, Jesus is that guy. Jesus is the Lamb of God, he says. Now, what's the message for us today? The message for us today is the same as it was then. But to really see, and I think to grasp the message, I think it's helpful to see the ESV. So the NIV translates uh, and says, look, the Lamb of God. Has John saying, look, the Lamb of God. But notice how the ESV translates it. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, behold. That's much better than look, right? That's much more fun. Look is boring. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, the word behold means more than just physically look at with your eyes. It means to look intensely. It's more than just a parting glance. To behold something means to, to take it in, to soak it up, to, to experience it, to realize it, to meditate on it. And when you behold a beautiful sunset, that you stare at it. And the longer you stare at it, the more you take it in and experience it. It's almost like a, a looking, looking at something in order to, 
to let it enter into your mind and, and affect your heart. And here at the beginning of John's story about Jesus, in the opening scene of his movie, his message is, behold the Lamb of God. And so as we study through the Gospel of John this year, make it your goal to behold the Lamb of God in every passage of Scripture. Look at and stare at Jesus. And when you behold the Lamb of God by faith for the very first time, you can experience his love and forgiveness as you begin that eternal relationship with God. And if you're here this morning, you're, you're listening online, and if you're not yet a Christ follower, I want to encourage you, look at Jesus. Stare at him on the cross. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away your sin. Receive by faith the forgiveness of sins that Jesus offers. God created us. He created us for a close, loving relationship, but we've all selflessly turned away from God. We've all gone our own way. And the creation has rebelled against the creator. We're all guilty of sin. We're all guilty of turning away from God and not giving God what we owe him, which as our creator, as the author of our life, he has all authority in our life and he deserves our loyalty and our devotion. He deserves our, our faithfulness and, and our love. We owe him our worship and our service. And listen, the just punishment for turning away from God is separation from God for all eternity in what Jesus described as hell. This is God's wrath. This is what the Christian is saved from. John says a couple of verses, chapters later in chapter three, verse 36, whoever believes in the son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the son will not see life for God's wrath remains on them. Sometimes in the Christian world, we can use these languages. Are you saved? You got saved, got saved, salvation. We don't, sometimes we don't know what we're talking about. What are we saved from? We're saved from God's wrath. That's what we're saved from. Whoever refuses to believe and receive Jesus as the son of God, whoever will not behold the lamb of God, they remain under God's wrath and his judgment. That's the bad news. But the good news is much better. The good news is that God has provided the lamb for us. And who was the lamb? It was God himself. Think about this. Oh, behold the lamb of God right now with me. God left heaven and came to earth for us. And on the cross, the son of God took on the wrath of God on our behalf. That's an incredible story. On the cross, Jesus took our place. He was our substitute. And the message of John is that whoever believes, all, it's not based on your performance, not based on what you earn, it's not based on religion, it's by faith. Whoever believes by faith, whoever puts their faith and confidence and entrusts their lives to Jesus as the Son of God, as the one who is the Lamb of God, who takes away their sins, then you are free from God's wrath and judgment. Here's how John says it in chapter five, verse 24. Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Isn't that good news? Folks, I don't know if you don't have nothing else in your life that's more exciting than this. I promise you that. We are saved from God's judgment. We cross over from death to life. And how we do it? We do it by faith. He did all the work. He did all the performing. He did his part. What's he ask of us? Believe me by faith. And all of his performance gets credited to our account. This is the best deal in human history. 
The moment you begin believing by faith that Jesus is the Son of God, you enter into that eternal relationship. Now listen, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, then I plead with you, do it today. Just simply pray. Confess that you are guilty of turning away from God. Confess that you are a sinner. Agree with God and then say, but I'll take your offer. I'll believe. I'll receive by faith. I'll put my faith and my trust in you, Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away your sins. Now, for many of us, we have believed, but we need to be reminded today to keep believing on a daily basis. Every day, we have opportunities to behold the Lamb of God. Listen, whenever you realize or you are faced with the reality of your own sinfulness, you can look at the cross and behold the Lamb of God. You can give thanks and praise, and you can draw close to God. Typically what happens is that whenever we are faced with our sin, whenever we realize how unloving we are, whenever we see how impatient and unkind, whenever we see how prideful and selfish that we can be, we tend to judge ourselves. We know we are guilty. We condemn ourselves. And that's typically when we are filled with shame. And then our shame weighs us down, often makes us withdraw from God and hide from him. And we miss out on the life he has for us. But as author Paul Miller says, and this is so good, he says the gospel converts shame into guilt and Jesus on the cross forgives and removes guilt. I mean, let me say this again. Miller says the gospel takes your shame and converts it to guilt. And then Jesus on the cross forgives you and frees you of your guilt, declares you're innocent. That's so good. See, when your faith is in the blood of the lamb, it means that your sinfulness doesn't separate you from God. And so when you sin, you can behold the lamb of God and draw close to God with thanksgiving and praise. You can keep receiving his loving care as your heavenly father, even when you sin, even when you're faced with your brokenness. And this is also true when you experience the sin of others and when you simply experience the brokenness of this fallen world. So when you feel the stress of the political and culture wars, behold the Lamb of God who's taken away the sin and healed the brokenness. When you experience conflict and tension in your marriage, behold the Lamb of God. When you're burdened by financial problems, behold the Lamb of God and take FPU. When you are overwhelmed, that was was funny, that was funny. When you are overwhelmed with all the responsibilities at work and at home and the expectations and you can't live up to, behold the Lamb of God. When you get news of sickness or disease, or when a loved one passes away. Way too soon. And it makes no sense. You behold the Lamb of God. You behold the Lamb of God. You keep believing in Jesus Christ. See, beholding is what releases God's love into our lives in the moments we need it most. 
Let me say it again. Beholding is what releases God's love into our lives in the moments we need his love the most. Just look at the cross. Romans 5, 8 says, God demonstrated his love for you and for me in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Tim Keller says it this way. The sacrificial, costly love of Jesus on the cross changes us. When we see the beauty of what he has done for us, I am now convinced the most beautiful image in human history is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ on the cross. There's no beauty more beautiful of an image in human history. And when we see how beautiful it is and what he has done for us, when we see his love for us, that he took away and he met our greatest need, it attracts our hearts to him. We are filled with greater love. We experience his love. Beholding is what releases God's love into our, moment, into our lives in the moments we need it most. See, we behold at the beginning and we keep on beholding daily. And then there's gonna come a day in the future when we will all gather around the throne of God and we will all worship the Lamb of God together. Joel read from the book of Revelation, which the apostle John wrote. And here's what John described. Let's end with it as well. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. And they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. It's a lot of people. And in a loud voice, they were saying, worthy is the lamb. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the sea and on the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne, to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. Will you please stand with me? We have a simple opportunity over the next few minutes to behold the Lamb of God right now with song. And regardless of where you are in your relationship with the Lord, take this opportunity in the next few minutes through prayer and behold the Lamb of God. If you've never put your faith and trust in Christ, do it right now as we sing. And if you have, give Him thanks again. Give Him thanks and praise. Let's worship the Lamb of God together. Father, thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Would you help us as a church family? Behold, so that in him we may have life. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.